Hello friends and welcome to our last uh, Hebrews study. Uh, just a little note before we get started. Um, I accidentally had uh, some kind of echo effect turned on on the microphone. So the recording of the class is a little, sounds a little odd. So bear with us and um, all right, we'll go ahead and dive right in. All right, let us pray. Welcome everyone to the uh, closing, yeah, closing session of our Bible study on Hebrews. So thanks for putting up with Mark and I as we spill out what we've been given. Hopefully you guys can put it to good use. I almost feel like you need to like go back to the Hebrews now and like pray with it. You know, you know, we do a lot of study, but not forget always pray to use this word as well. Living and effective. So let us pray now in the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Come Holy Spirit, teach us how to pray. Lord Jesus, the beginning and end of our faith, the leader and perfecter. Visit your people, send forth your Spirit upon us. That in opening your word, our faith may be sparked. That it may be brought to that perfection of vision in your heavenly kingdom. When at last we see you, not with these shadows, but rather face to face. For this we long, and for this we now study and pray together. We ask all this in your holy name. Amen. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. So, for the last class, I will get to lead us through Hebrews chapter 11, kind of a longer chapter, and Mark will close us out with 12 and 13, two sort of shorter ones together. And then with that, we'll set you out into the wild. And so, this chapter 11, I'd, I'd almost like us just to open it up, Hebrews chapter 11, and I don't suppose you've been reading the chapters ahead of time <laughs> coming in. Maybe you have, but uh, maybe just let's all spend a few minutes glancing through all the different examples of faith the uh, Hebrews is about to embark on. This sort of hall of fame, hall of faith. Uh, so I'll just give you just a few minutes scanning over those, or maybe returning to some that struck you. We're going to be revisiting a lot of stories from the Old Testament. So. Hebrews chapter 11, verse 1 and onward.
So I'm sure this is too short to have gotten through the whole chapter or even thought much about. But at least in these first verses, um, I guess, are there any questions that, that stand out for you? It's good to maybe define some of our questions about what's, what is happening here in this chapter. Why does he turn now to this list? The Old Testament patriarchs. We just want to get to the good stuff. <laughs> That's good too. I'm not sure about your Bibles, but mine has a little code on every page that has references. You know, it'll send you to a different part of the Bible. And on these two pages, you know, they have to restart the alphabets, you know, a couple times over because there are so many references that we're going to try to go to as well. That's a wonderful way to read the Bible as well. You know, just starting maybe somewhere in the Gospels, but then looking to these references. And every time you hit one of those, you know, maybe follow it, kind of like a little rabbit hole. Click on the link and it'll take you uh, on a journey. It'll take you on an adventure, really. Um, you can follow one link to the next link to the next link to the next link, and it'd be kind of an, an exciting way to go sometimes. So there's just another tool, uh, reading the Bible for you guys. You know, it's all connected. Uh, I've seen, they even have this picture of, you know, taking the entire Bible as like a number line almost, and then drawing arcs to every reference. And I mean, it's not even every reference, right? You couldn't do that. But it just makes this, you know, huge arc, <laughs> this, this huge overarching theme. You know, like any good movie or orchestra, you know, there's things in the beginning that grow and grow and develop to the end. Uh, it just, it makes, makes for a beautiful picture. But just after familiarizing ourselves with some of the contents, let's dive in to Hebrews chapter 11. Most of it revolves right around this one sentence. Faith is the realization of what is hoped for, the evidence of things not seen. I think it's easy to think of faith kind of like the leap of faith, <laughs> walk of faith, walk by faith and not by sight. Uh, there's kind of that classic parable of the tightrope artist, you know, who, who walks across effortlessly a tightrope uh, to the cheering of the crowd, and he said to them, do you believe I can do it again? Do you believe I can do it again? And they all cry, yes, we believe, we believe. And then he says, do you believe I can go across the wheelbarrow, or like with a wheelbarrow in my, in my hands? And they're like, yes, yes, we believe, we believe. And then he says, okay, who's going to jump into the wheelbarrow with me? And nobody, nobody believed, right? <laughs> nobody believed. Nobody really believed. Belief is, is a lot more than just this, again, intellectual leap of faith. Uh, there's so much more to it. And so for that, I, I draw attention uh, to kind of both of these realization and evidence. These two words, right? It's the realization of what is hoped for and the evidence of things not seen. These two words, uh, the early church fathers really attached to. Uh, first realization, I'm going to throw a, throw a Greek word at you. Hypostasis. It's the hypostasis. Uh, we call the union of Jesus Christ, his, his human nature and his divine nature united in his person, we call it the hypostatic union. Uh, the union in, in the very substance of his being, in the very reality. So realization, 
you know, think reality. It's the substance. It's the reality of what we hoped for already now. So the early church fathers will read that line and say, faith is the beginning of eternal life. It's the beginning of heaven. You know, it's already right now a spark, a seed, the substance, kind of like a seed. Again, it's the whole substance of the tree, but in a seed form. And it will sprout, it will grow, and eventually bear fruits in eternal life. But it's already the substance of that. Faith is already the beginnings of eternal life. I love it as well. You can, uh, this reference I don't think is in there, so you can maybe add it in your Bibles to Hebrews chapter 1, verse 3. The author actually used the very same word, hypostasis, in another context. So just reading that verse, you know, Jesus, who is the reflection of the Father's glory, the very imprint of his being. And there's that word again, imprint, realization, hypostasis. Jesus, who is the very realization, the very substance of God. So I think that's a beautiful connection with this verse as well. Hebrews 1, verse 3, Hebrews 11, 1. Jesus, who is the very realization of God. God with us. And then our faith, which is the very realization of Jesus. God with us. <laughs> it's the beginning of eternal life. Much more than just the sort of intellectual belief. So the realization of what it's hoped for and the evidence of things not seen. And that's sort of a very classic definition of what faith means. It's if you take something by faith, you have evidence, but not evidence that came from yourself, evidence that came from another. Uh, C.S. Lewis uh, famously said, if a man is to live without faith, without reasoning from authority, he's going to have to go on knowing very little in his life, because most things we know actually come from faith, come from authority. You know, I don't, I don't know that the earth is round. I've, I've never been to space. I've never studied the curvature of the earth and the shadows of the sun. I take it by good faith from those in authority that they know what they're talking about, and that not all scientists are lying to us, right? And so we believe God because he is the highest authority. If we're going to believe any human being, all the more so should we believe truth itself. Truth itself speaks truly or there's nothing true. So it's this evidence of things not seen. It's this believing God because he's, the, he's this highest authority. But uh, we have to go one level deeper. I, I want to draw a little chart. I love charts. Um, again, uh, I think this is Thomas Aquinas, so kind of collecting all the teaching of the church fathers. Uh, he kind of notes that we use faith in sort of three different ways, three different kind of sentences. So there's this first kind of faith where you believe, believe that. So again, I believe that the earth is rounds. I haven't seen it for myself. I take it on good authority. We're believing a fact. He says, if that's all our faith is, just that we believe, like the, the creed, you know, we believe the church, we haven't really gotten the faith. We don't have it at all. We just, we're believing a certain set of principles, but there's something more to faith. So he says, the second way we sort of use the word believe is we believe, we believe him, we'll just say. You know, we believe God. Again, we believe he is in, in an authority. 
I think I use, what do I use? I usually use maybe the uh, analogy of the Husker coach. You know, I believe that we have a Husker coach, Mark Rule. He is the coach of the Huskers. You know, I was not a part of the decision. I haven't even seen him, you know. I haven't even researched, is he even a real person? But I think he's there. I'll probably see him soon, right? And then it won't just be belief. And I might also believe him, you know. Believe that he's coaching well, that he is actually means what he says when he talks about the reform of the Oscars and whatever else. But again, we, don't, we also don't just believe what God says because it's true. There's like one more level to faith. It's sort of the level of that wheelbarrow example. You know, to believe that I can cross this with a wheelbarrow. Well, jump on in. It's, it's believing in. It's, it's the belief that transforms your life. So I also, I, I don't yet, you know, believe in coach rule. I don't believe in the Husker coach, right? I haven't fully entrusted myself yet to him and his project, right? I'm, I'm a little skeptical still, right? But hopefully the players believe in him. They are totally buying in to the process. And so this is the level of faith that, again, is the faith that saves, first of all. Right? Faith that, you know, moves you <laughs> to put in, in trust your whole self, to get into that wheelbarrow, to go all in. So this is what is meant by evidence as well. Evidence, again, we might think of it as, you know, evidence by authority. God speaks with authority, so we have to believe him. But it can also mean that sort of internal evidence, internal conviction that we are, we are convicted, we are won over, we are entrusting ourselves totally into this thing, though it is not seen. Yes, yes. Virtue of faith. Yeah. Well, all three of them, in a way, are the virtue of faith. Because by faith, we believe certain things, yes. We, we believe the creed. We believe that, yes. By faith, we also believe God, that what he says is true. But the most fundamental thing that faith is, is this entrusting ourselves to the Father. So again, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of God. It's not just believing that certain thing, that Jesus is Lord, is, is what's going to save you. You know, and it's, it's also... Not even believing that he speaks the truth. You know, I think that's maybe the sense that the demons believe in God and tremble, right? That's what St. James says. Even the demons believe in God and tremble. They know that God speaks the truth. They know that he has the highest authority, uh, but they will not serve. They will not serve and tremble. And so they lack, you know, this deeper faith of entrusting themselves to him. And so do some of us sometimes. Yeah, go ahead. In a wheelbarrow? Yes. Sure. That would be that third level faith. Yes. You will, you will get into that wheelbarrow with God. Yes. 
It is, yeah, the foolishness of putting faith in other things, though, then, and, and idols. You know, it's not just about believing that the idol is a god. It's not even about, like, believing the idols tell you the truth or, like, predict the future. It, it's that third level of, like, you entrust your life to this sort of thing. Like, you think that this thing can save you? Like, this thing can change, can, like, give you eternal life, you know? Kind of works both ways, like... It's that level of faith that's so ridiculed in the Bible. Why do you believe in these things? So then, like, that person is deceived at all three when they're baptized and take a theological virtue? Right. If you have a theological virtue of faith, well, that's a good question, actually, because, you know, in a sense, the last one is actually faith working through love, as St. Paul would say in Galatians 5 6. <laughs> It, it, it's the faith that leads to love, right? So faith can be dead, you know? You can have a dead faith, which I guess kind of d might resemble those first two. You know, you might still believe that there is a God with that dead faith. You might still even believe him, you know, that he tells the truth, that his words are truth, but not, you know, holding back from him, not entrusting yourself to him. Uh, so kind of that distinction between a living faith that has love, it's at that third level, Versus a dead faith. Of course, in baptism, you're given a living faith, so I suppose you get all three in baptism, an infusion of those three. So, yeah, first verse, Mark. Um, and I'm almost out, I'm almost out of time, so. <laughs> let's, let's fly. Let's fly. The Song of the Ancients. Uh, another reference, good reference to maybe write in your Bible is, is Sirach, 44 to 50. It's sort of a very similar song that Hebrews is about to go through. Um, just down the list of all the patriarchs that have gone before us. And in, in Sirach, Sirach's a book of wisdom showing how they lived the wisdom of the law, the way of the law. And he arrives at the end of this list to a, a, an interesting figure, a high priest. Uh, the high priest in the temple. So something very similar is going to happen here in Hebrews where he's going to arrive to the comet, to, to today you know, throughout all of this history, to the perfecter of the faith. You know, Sirach, I think, I can't remember who it is, Simon, Simon the high priest or something like that, who he arrives to in his own day, you know, the high priest who sort of represents again everything that has happened, the whole story of Israel, kind of up to that moment, summed up in the high priest. Well, for Hebrews, all the more so, we have a great high priest, Jesus. So a similar structure is going on here, and that's where we're getting um, another fun thing, ancients there, that word is actually presbyteros, priests. The, the priests were well attested. Um, there's other words for priests, but this is one of them. I kind of like to think, you know, he's going through the list of all the priests, different priesthoods, um, up until, again, the priesthood of Christ. <laughs> Can't go through the five proofs for the existence of God. It's a ninth, but... Uh, I just wanted to, to note, he starts with creation, which is interesting, right? Because he's kind of going through people, through, through covenants that God made. God sort of makes a covenant with all of his children. And in, in a way, you know, all of creation kind of is summed up into the children of God. You know, we don't usually think of maybe the son as a person. But, you know, St. Francis kind of did that. You know, brother, son, and sister, moon. There's, there's this sense in which, you know, this, these are the first children of God. God meant for something greater, though, than just the sun and moon, things that cannot give him praise properly. Um, 
So, but he does start with creation, um, which we, we talked about new creation. So there's some connections there. This would be worth um, some, if you don't know about him, you know, it might be worth, I can point you to podcasts and things, just the five, they're actually not proofs for the existence of God. They're, they're ways, the five ways to just demonstrate God's, that God is, that God exists, that he is with us. It, the, the first one is through motion. Every time something moves, again, we can't go through all the proofs, but it just it shows this, this chain, of, chain of command, chain of being, that every single movement, God is behind it. We have to suppose there is a first mover who is not himself moved. Every cause, everything that is caused to be, you have to suppose that there is some first cause which himself is not caused, and that being we call God. Um, everything, everything is up in chance. Everything can be, can pass away or come into being. You know, everything seems to be so, so fleeting. So why is there anything at all? You know, if, if at some point everything could pass away, that is, wouldn't there be a time when there's nothing, everything has passed away and yet everything is here. Maybe there's something that must be, that must exist, that is necessary for existence at all. And this thing we call God. Also perfection, you know, we call things good and smart and true. But it's not goodness itself. It's not smartness itself. It's not truth itself that we really mean by that thing. It sort of supposes that we know that there's some fullness of goodness, fullness of truth that's out there somewhere. Maybe it's not even in this universe, but it supposes the existence of something that is perfectly good, perfectly true, and that thing we suppose is God. Intelligence as well. That there's Everything sort of acts with this purpose. There's a design, there's, there's meaning in all of creation. Everything acts for an end, but things that can't give themselves an end, you know, even the sun and the earth, you know, they don't have brains like we do to control themselves. So again, uh, the, the whole point of this, I guess, though, is to look at this first step that even imprinted on the very order of the universe is this sort of image of God. Uh, God, who is all these things, the first cause, first mover, you know, necessary being, the, the perfect, uh, the, the divine will itself. All these things he imprints on all of these, all of his creatures. And then as we go through every person, we, we see an imprint of God on them as well. And I think that's why it's leading up to Jesus, who is the perfect imprint, the perfect hypostasis, the realization of everything that's hoped for. But we start even in creation. We go through Abel. Uh, he still speaks. And I think this is a, the key phrase. Uh, Mark will probably <laughs> cover the blood of Abel, I suppose. But there's this moment where Abel's blood speaks to God still from the ground. Blood speaks. Uh, his sacrifice still speaks. He was the priest of his sacrifice, but he also becomes the victim. That's the imprint of Jesus. Okay, That's the hypostasis of, of our faith in seed form, right? Enoch, oh, I wish I could go through more. The book of Enoch um, did not make it into the Bible. It is a, it is a, there's many, there's several books. There might be four, I can't remember. Maybe even more than that. <laughs> Enoch, who's this mysterious figure in the early, in early book of Genesis. All we kind of know about him is that he was just and that God took him to himself. Not much more than that. But there's this apocalyptic literature on Enoch 
that sort of uh, speaks on many of the, the same themes of Hebrews and Revelation, Book of Revelation especially. Uh, it even has a book of parables, uh, which should make us think of Jesus, yes, but there's, remember that word parable, because um, it's going to come up again. But Enoch, who was taken to God, okay, in print of Jesus right there, right? The ascension we just celebrated. Uh, Without faith, it is impossible to please him. For anyone who approaches God must believe that he exists and that he rewards those who seek him. So, so there again, maybe we can almost see you know, there's only two things given here, but we believe that God exists, but that's not sufficient. Okay, that's not a sufficient faith. That he rewards those who seek him. You know, that's starting to get more into believing him, that he rewards those who seek him, but also believing in him, that I want, I want that reward. Um, of course, Thomas Aquinas, back to him, right? Uh, he, was, he was asked by Jesus, kind of a vision near the end of his life, after all of his studies and work that he did, you know, sort of had this vision of Jesus asking him, what would you have as your reward? And Thomas said the correct answer, as he always does. <laughs> uh, nothing. Only you. Only you. You are my reward. And I think that's very much in line with what Hebrews is. Whenever you see reward, you know, don't think something external to God. The reward is God himself. It is his very life. That is the reward that he promises us. So believing into him almost. Believing in him. Believing into him. Oh, I thought this was a fun picture. Think of the ark as a boat, right? But it's, it's very much described as a temple. <laughs> or, you know, the ark of the covenant and the ark of Noah. There's a reason we use ark for both of those because the Greek uses ark for both of those. Um, I, I know we just got to fly through this a little bit so I can get to, to, get to Mark. Um, Abraham leaving the fatherland, though. Abraham leaves the land of his father. Um, going to a place that he was to receive as an inheritance. So he went out, not knowing where he was to go. This is not Abraham. <laughs> but this is uh, the, the same idea as imprinted really on our nature, almost. Again, um, we started in creation. God imprinted on all his people this longing for the fatherland. So any classically educated people remember who this is? This is actually uh, Aeneas uh, leaving Troy. The Trojan horse, you know, and all that. The Greeks destroyed Troy. And so Aeneas sets out on this journey with his father on his back, his whole and his son in his hands. His whole inheritance is right there. And Abraham, I mean, again, kind of is the perfect model of this. Right? There's this longing in every human heart. Aeneas will go on his journey. He'll eventually found the city of Rome. Okay, so there's this great, ep- these great epics of all time are often about finding the fatherland. And so there's kind of, it's written on all of our nature, looking for where is our father. Of course, we have tried many ways to build it up ourselves, and so many myths. Uh, and this, ta- this is the Tower of Babel, right? <laughs> our own attempt to build this up. And yet, Abraham was looking forward to a city whose foundation, whose architect and maker is God. So not something we've built up for ourselves, uh, that's why he can leave his father's lands, leave the land of Terah, leave Ur of the Chaldees, and set out in tents, dwelling in tents. There's those tents again, as we talked about last time, the dwelling places, the dwelling with God. 
God's having us in his tent because he's not yet building up his city. We've not yet reached the city where the foundation, the architect, the maker is God. Okay, this is a fun one. This is going to involve your participation. A little exercise here. Involving those, following those references, okay? So we get to that point in Hebrews 11. We get to Abraham. He spends a lot of time on Abraham. And he talks about this promise that God makes to Abraham that even though he himself was already old and as good as dead, his descendants would be as numerous as the stars in the sky and as countless as the sands on the seashore. So we're going to turn back to Genesis, if you would like. Genesis chapter 15. Uh, when you get there, you can start on verse 3. All the way back in the beginning. In the beginning, the Lord created the heaven and the earth. Genesis 15, verse 3. Again, Abram, look, Lord, you give me no offspring. A servant of my household will have to be my heir. But the word of the Lord came to him, no, that one will not be your heir. Your own offspring will be your heir. He took him outside and said, look up at the sky and count the stars if you can. Just so he added, will your descendants be to Abraham? Abram put his faith in the Lord who attributed it to him as an act of righteousness. There's a little more to the conversation then, but I want you to skip to verse 17. If we suppose that this is all the same conversation, this is all the same scene, go to verse 17 then. It kind of goes into some other things. Verse 17 says, When the sun had set and it was dark, I stop there. Because this was how I always envisioned the scene, right? Look up at the stars. Count them if you can. Why can't Abraham count the stars? It's still daytime. <laughs> it was still daytime. Uh, so that's, that gives a whole different reflection. Of course, you know, maybe there's a break in the conversation. Maybe this is two different scenes. But the rabbis didn't miss that detail either. The rabbis would talk about that. Why can't Abraham count the stars? Again, it's, it's an act of faith, right? It's daytime. We can see only one star, right? The, the sun, you know, uh, the light so bright that he can't see beyond it. But that one star is enough, I guess, to see by. Uh, uh, the one son Isaac that he gets, right? Um, Jesus, the one son of God, it's enough light. Even if we can't count all the stars, all the paths of our life, uh, we have the one star, the one sun. That's enough light to go by. So I think that's a wonderful, again, little, little parable of, of faith. Why can't Abraham count the stars? Again, yeah, he can't count the stars, right? But also, it was daytime. All these died in faith. They did not receive what they had been promised, but saw it and greeted it from afar and acknowledged themselves to be strangers and aliens on earth. Those who speak thus show that they are seeking a homeland, a fatherland, a patria, patriots. I include the words, you know, my country tis of thee. What is our country? It's the land where my fathers died, the land of the pilgrim's pride from every mountainside. Let freedom reign. Included this little, little bit because all of the patriarchs are going to insist and they'd be buried in the Holy Lands. We're going to see that with Jacob and Joseph. They all insist. Take my bones back to Israel. 
take them back. Uh, there's this real belief in a sort of resurrection already happening here. I want to be there when it happens. They desired a better homeland, a heavenly one. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared a city for them. I like this connection then. Again, another reference earlier in Hebrews. Um, it, it kind of mentions that Jesus will not be ashamed. He is not ashamed. Jesus is not ashamed to call us brothers, you know, of the one fatherland. Kind of a beautiful thing there. Again, I just want to get some marks. So. I want to put this, uh, put this also. This is a beautiful scene as well from Abraham. You know, going, Isaac carrying the wood of the sacrifice up the hill, right? Jesus carrying the wood of the cross. We know a lot of those connections there. God himself will provide the sacrifice. Abraham tells his son, Isaac, you know, Isaac's like, where is the sacrifice? God himself will provide it. And God does, right? God does not, in the end, force Abraham to give up his son. God himself is going to give up his son, Jesus. So the ram was caught in the thorns. You know, Jesus is caught in the thorns, the crown of thorns. There's so many, so many beautiful things there. But what Hebrews focuses on is this moment when it really shows Abraham put his faith in the resurrection. Faith in, in sort of Jesus to come, Jesus' paschal mystery, which again, Hebrews is all about Easter and the paschal mystery, and the Passover of the Lord. You see, he notes that when Abraham departed with Isaac, he actually left some of his servants behind. And Abraham told them that us two are going to go and sacrifice, and we will come back to you. So is Abraham lying? Is he saying that, you know, I'm going to kill Isaac, but I don't want you to know that, so I'm going to promise you that we will come back? The rabbi suggests, no, Abraham didn't lie. Well, uh, he kind of did, actually. I mean, <laughs> he... He lied to Pharaoh a couple of times, you know, he was little. But he's not lying here. He really believes that Isaac is, that, is the son. Isaac is the son in the sky as well. He's the one son he's been given, the son of the promise. Somehow, even if I sacrifice him, God has to give him back to me because he promised. So that's the faith of Abraham. It's not that I'm going to give up Isaac and then be, be done, be over with. No, God has to give him back to me somehow because he's the son of the promise. So he, he, it's almost this resurrection-type faith that Abraham believes in. So, again, that's, that's why, oops, he reasons, our faith be reasonable, that's a good uh, little scriptural verse for faith and reason going together. He reasoned that God was able to raise even from the dead his son Isaac, even if he should give him, him up. And so he receives Isaac back as a symbol and that's very profound right there. He receives Isaac back as a symbol, as a sacrament, as a, as a literally a parable. He received Isaac back as a parable. Abraham and Isaac become this parable of the one to come. They bear this imprint, again, sort of this sacrament, the visible, making the invisible seen. Uh, they're, they're this like Old Testament sacrament of what God is going to do with his son, Jesus. Again, even though he should be given up, God can raise from the dead. God can still give his inheritance. And so it's the same sort of action that God does for us. Yeah, go ahead. Oops, who's that? Sorry. Yeah.
No, I don't. I don't follow. What? Where? I guess. Where do you get that? Uh, I mean, certainly, like from his very get-go, Abraham left everything, right? So he definitely had a strong faith at the beginning. So I don't want to say like he didn't have a strong faith. I guess I don't know where this. Well, I guess with the idea of the testing, right? That it makes his faith stronger. It makes it seen. Makes it again. Faith is the evidence of things unseen. So it makes his inner faith seen, and it provides us a symbol, a parable, a sacrament of what God is going to do. So I guess why? What's yeah? Right. My well, my servant of my household is gonna yeah. He had his backup plans. Yes. Right. 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 Goes on a journey, of, of course. Yes. Is that what you? But what, what? What's the question behind the question? Why are you asking the question? Right. Yeah. That's a very like. I, I think this is what the rabbis in the early church would count as the most mature faith of Abraham. Faith that is believing in God. That he knows that God is going to give Isaac back. It doesn't get much better than this. I mean, his life, his life ends very shortly after this. So this is kind of the pinnacle moment for Abraham. Yes. This is almost near the end of his life. I mean, like, there's not much more after this in the book of Genesis on Abraham. Yeah. What's wrong with that? What's wrong with that? Okay, well, I'm going to basically turn it over to Mark, though. Oh, yeah. Man. So many, so many fun things, but... Yep, did you, did you get all that? <laughs> no, there's, there's so many fun things, right? Esau. Esau got blessed by Jacob, actually. You think he just gave... Or by, uh, by Isaac. You think he just gave it to Jacob, but Esau actually said it wasn't fair. Give me a blessing. He sort of gave him a, a weird blessing. Is more like a curse, yeah. But that at the very end, that you will be reconciled to your brother. And, and so there's this forgiveness that's coming, okay, is kind of his blessing. This is also a funny one. Uh, Jacob blessing Joseph's sons, and he sort of crosses his arms, you know. The main son's supposed to get the right hand, and the second one, the left hand, and he crosses his arms, and Joseph's like, Dad, no, like, you're doing it wrong. You know, you're just an old man, like, you know. But it's like this sign of the cross, you know, this blessing from the cross. Um, the bones of Joseph, again, I want to be buried in the promised land because, again, I have this resurrection-type faith um, that God's going to make something new. Uh, Miriam, I include this. Um, uh, there, 
the movies always portray it as a chance encounter that Moses showed up to Pharaoh's daughter. But the Bible, when you read it, actually, like, Moses' sister is kind of guiding it to that direction. And Moses' sister knows Pharaoh's daughter already. She's like a servant or something in the household. So there's sort of this, uh, this funny uh, I just, idea of Miriam, you know, again, as the deliverer of the deliverer. And, of course, Mary is Miriam in Hebrew is also the deliverer of the deliverer, you know. There's kind of that idea. Miriam was sister of Moses, I suppose, but, you know, you know, everything can't be exactly right. Otherwise, it'd be the same thing. It wouldn't be a shadow, you know. Uh, Moses, who enters the suffering of his people, is also emphasized, which is not emphasized in the book of Exodus. So Hebrews is really kind of, you know, reading Christ into all these moments of the Old Testament. Um, oh, there's so many fun things we could go to. <laughs> Jericho, the walls tum- tumbling down. Uh, Rahab, right? Rahab harbored the, uh, the spies of Israel, harbored the apostles in, in a way, those who were sent from the community of Israel into Jericho, into the world. And because of that, she almost gets her own Passover, right? Uh, she's told to put a red garment, red, red cord out of her window, and they will not... The, the angel of death will pass over her house as well. I think she actually becomes a part of the line of Christ. And I think she's maybe the mother or the grandmother of Boaz, who marries Ruth, who then becomes the grandmother of David. So she becomes part of David's line. Uh, so again, kind of us entering that Passover moment, even though we're Gentiles, even if we're Gentiles. Uh, again, resurrection-type faith. Uh, women received back their dead through resurrection. Uh, this points to Elijah and Elisha. Both did miracles like this, giving a son back to the mother. But then also two Maccabees, uh, two Maccabees 7, there's this beautiful moment. They're actually considered martyrs in, in especially the Eastern Church. Um, the woman of seven Maccabees who gives up even her seven sons and points to this moment, like the very last one, saying, you know, God who formed you in my womb can form you again. Again, it's this resurrection type thing. So, suffering prophets, uh, this is kind of the punchline, though. Though approved because of their faith, they did not receive what had been promised. God had foreseen something better for us, so that without us, they should not be made perfect. So again, just like the book of Sirach goes through the whole list of the Old Testament, it arrives at Simon the high priest, who's sort of the Old Testament, the covenant in person. So Hebrews will arrive at Jesus and Father Walmeyer will arrive at Mark. So, so there you go. Yeah, exactly. Uh, well, I, I did include verse 1, though. Um, I, I just slipped into that. You know, surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses. It's funny, that word witness, that's your chapter. Uh, it showed up in a hidden way all throughout chapter 11. Whenever it says that they were well attested, the, the, the ancients were well attested, or this was attested to him as righteousness, or he attested this, or he, he witnessed this. It's the word for martyr. It's the word martyr. He was a martyr. He was a martyrus. He was a witness. So we're surrounded by so great a cloud of martyrs. Uh, a cloud, which always presents us with the divine, with the divine presence, the cloud of the tabernacle. So these witnesses, again, have bared, borne the imprint of God's being. Again, the hypostasis, the realization of what is hoped for. 
but now we get the reality itself, which is Jesus. So, what time is left? Yes. We had lots of trees and brought. Let's see, Glenda brought some. Jim, was, these were Jim's, the brownie cookies. And then Maria Valeria, your mom, or you made these, right? You made... That's your aunt's? I'm confused then. I'm so confused. She is your aunt's. Great. Um, but in honor of the Virgin Mary, help of Christians, whose feast is today. So, um, yes, you can go ahead and grab, grab some snacks. All right, we'll, we'll go ahead and get started. Um, so I have chapter 12 and 13. We won't read through every detail or even close to the amount of detail that Father Walmeyer provided. Um, I'll just pull out some nuggets. So I, I am counting on you having read it beforehand. Uh, so hopefully... <laughs> but if you didn't read it beforehand, you can always come back to it afterwards. Okay. Um, so just some nuggets, and then hopefully we'll have some time for you to share your thoughts and, and insights and ponderings. All right, so uh, just to situate us, so chapter 11, 12, and 13 um, are about faith, hope, and love. So obviously the last chapter was all about faith. Uh, chapter 12, about half of it's going to be about hope, enduring trials and endurance. Is a, it's coupled with hope. And then it's going to switch to um, charity, how we live our life, how all of this is supposed to inform our actions. So the whole letter has been talking about Jesus, how he's greater than what came before, how his blood cleansed the tabernacle of creation, all this. And in chapter 11, 12, and 13, it's going to switch to, well, if all that's true about Jesus, what does this mean about our life? Chapter 11, faith. Chapter 12, hope. Chapter 13, love. So, chapter 12, uh, Father Walmeyer already read the first first verse for you. Uh, we're surrounded by this great cloud of witnesses. So, let us lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the founder and protector of our faith. So, so the letter to the Hebrews has just unpacked this litany of examples of faith, but Jesus is clearly in a realm all of its, on a level all of his own. He's not another example of faith. He's the, the, the founder and perfecter of our faith. So he's in a league of his, of his own. And that's why in, with this cloud of witnesses, our eyes aren't focused on the cloud of witnesses. Our eyes are focused on Jesus. And I think this is, this is a helpful uh, way to come at the communion of saints to understand how the church, under, uh, you know, why we venerate saints. So we venerate saints like this cloud of witnesses, um, but our, our focus isn't on them as though they're their end goal. Our focus is on Jesus. And what the saints do, the cloud of witnesses does, is it draws us to Jesus. It's impossible to grow closer to a saint without at the same time drawing closer to Jesus, like Mary. You entrust your life to Mary, what you going to do? She's going to take you and hand you over to her son. So our eyes are set on Jesus, but this cloud of witnesses helps draw us, us close. All right.
then, all right, moving on, verse 13, I mean, verse 3, sorry, not moving on that far. So verse 3, he talks about how Jesus had to endure from sinners' hostility. Um, so you also, in your struggle against sin, you should endure. And he, when he talks about discipline, so verse 3 through 11, he's going to talk about discipline, how God disciplines his, his sons. And if we're really children of God, then he's going he's gonna to discipline us like, like children. Um, that Greek word could also mean education. If discipline sounds too, too harsh, he's forming us, he's educating us. Uh, but notice here, er, earlier in the letter, other places in the letter, he'll talk about how our sanctification has been complete. Jesus, the, the perfect sacrifice has been offered, and his blood has atoned for our sins. Done deal. Um, you can see this in chapter 10, verse 12. When Christ offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God. Remember in Chapter 1, him sitting down means the sacrifice is over. He's done it. The work is complete. Hebrews, at the same time, will also talk about our sanctification and our salvation as a present. In the present tense, we are being sanctified. So in that verse I just read, it's more like we were sanctified. Jesus did the sacrifice. It's done. But then there's a present, present tense sense of salvation we are being saved and then hebrews will also speak of us be like we're going to be saved in the future tense paul does this too paul switches back and forth in his letters from you were saved to you're being saved to you will be saved um i i shared this uh, analogy with the paul group some of you i don't remember which group it was um so i'm sorry if i'm repeating myself but uh it's like being rescued from a sinking ship. So you're on the ship, it's going down, and a rescue boat comes and takes you into that boat. And in one sense, you could say, you were saved because you were rescued from the water. In another sense, you could say you're being saved because that boat is now taking you to the shore, but you're not to the shore yet. And then you can also say you will be saved once you reach the shore. I mean, you could always jump out or something, you know? And, so same thing with our salvation. Christ has won the victory. He's saved us by his death on the cross. It's, it's complete. It's all that's needed. So we've been saved, but then there's also this process of God continuing to form us, to discipline us, and we have to respond appropriately. Um, so we have to be faithful like Jesus was faithful. We have to be um, hopeful and endure trials like Jesus endured trials. And we have to show love to our neighbors like Jesus showed love. So this can be helpful if you get in, in, you know, discussions with our Protestant brothers and sisters who have a different understanding of salvation. Um, some, some will say, no, it's once saved, always saved. You don't have to work for your salvation. I mean, they're right on, on several points. We, there's many areas in which we agree with each other, but you can always point to this to illustrate how, like, yes, we were saved, but then there's also 
an ongoing process for our salvation, and we can we can fight against our own salvation. We can we can turn away from Jesus. So we continue to be sanctified. And then in verse 12, he switches from this theme of enduring trials to changing our our behavior, the way we act towards others. So he says in 12, Therefore lift your drooping hands and strengthen your weak knees and make straight the paths for your feet so that what is lame may not be put out of joint but rather be healed. Strive for peace with everyone and for the holiness without which no one will see the Lord. So this verse announces this, these two verses, 13 and 14, announce a shift in, in the theme. Make straight paths. What are those paths? It's strive for peace with everyone and holiness. And being at peace with everyone and, and this holiness or the sanctification um, are two sides of charity. So live the life of charity. And then he goes on to unpack what this means. See that no one fails to obtain the grace of God. So it's that you're in the boat, but you can jump out of the boat. You can fail to obtain the grace of God. That no root of bitterness springs up and causes trouble. That no one is sexually immoral or unholy like Esau, who sold his birthright for a single meal. So us Christians, we can't get too comfortable like Esau was. He was the, the, the firstborn. Um, and he had the birthright, which meant he would get a greater inheritance. But he, he didn't care much about it, so he sold it for, for a bowl of soup from his brother. We Christians can be in the same boat. Going back to my, to my analogy, we can be in the same boat as him and, and, and uh, give up our inheritance. We can jump out of that boat like Esau did. All right. Then, 18, verse 18 um, through 24, this is really cool. So he says, For you have not come to what may be touched, a blazing fire and darkness and gloom and a tempest and the sound of a trumpet and a voice whose word made the hearers beg that no further messages be spoken to them. Anybody know what he's alluding to? Sinai. Yeah, Mount Sinai. The people just got freed from Egypt. They go out into the desert. They go to Mount Sinai. Moses goes up on the mountain and there's a fire and the smoke and... Um, and the voice and the trumpet blast and the people are terrified. Now that's a theophany. I mean, that's, that's a full display of God, you know, his power, his presence with his people. But Hebrews, Hebrews says, that's got nothing on the Christian experience. Just the normal Joe Schmo Christian has a greater experience of God than Moses did going up on Mount Sinai. So you haven't come to Mount Sinai, but you have come, verse 22, to Mount Zion and to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, and to innumerable angels in festival gathering, and to the assembly of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven, and to God, the judge of all, to the spirits of the righteous made perfect, and to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant, and to the sprinkled blood that speaks louder than the blood of Abel. Woo! We've gone into the sanctuary. 
we've gone into the Holy of Holies. We are, we are in God's presence, and we have a greater experience of God than Moses did and the Israelites did at Mount Sinai. That's, that's bold. That's bold. So, verse 25, see that you do not refuse him who is speaking. So a big theme throughout the letter is God speaks and we respond. It, the, the letter starts, Hebrews 1, Long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets, but in these last days he has spoken to us by his Son. So this God speaking and us responding, it, it runs throughout the letter. Well, if God speaks Jesus, the whole mystery of Christ, we have to conform our actions, uh, our lives, and response. So don't refuse him who, has, who is speaking. So we can jump out of that boat. We can refuse to get in the boat. We can get in the boat, but then jump out later. We can refuse to get off the boat once it's gone to shore. But there's all kinds of ways we can mess up our, our salvation. So we can't get too comfortable. All right, then I'm just going to skim some things in chapter 13. So he, he brings up charity more in a negative sense, like don't, don't be bitter with each other, don't practice sexual immorality. But then he, in, verse, in chapter 13, he switches more to the positive. Let brotherly love continue. Do not neglect to show hospitality to strangers, for thereby some have entertained angels. Remember those who are in prison and those who are mistreated. Let marriage be held in honor. Keep your life free from love of money. Be content with what you have. Remember your leaders. Verse 9, do not be led away by strange <laughs> teachings. So this is more the, the Christian life framed positively. If all that has been said about Jesus is true, this is, this is what the life of a Christian should look like. All right. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I think that's that's helpful. So fear would be like a healthy respect for um maybe that's too weak, but like a uh like if you if you know that you're coming to Mount Zion and coming into God's presence then you should have this healthy awe and reverence for what's been given to you. Um, So the opposite of that would be kind of like, um, yeah, nonchalant, taking it for granted, you know. Um, the, 
the tradition was understanding God's wrath is kind of um, part and parcel with his justice. So his wrath is directed towards all that's unjust in the world and not right. Um, uh, kind of like this. The kids, when they have a sense, like they have such a keen sense of injustice. Like my, our kids, we, um, they get when one of their siblings offends them and they demand satisfaction, like immediately. Say you're sorry. So, so they they have this like wrath. They they know something's been done wrong, and they they fiercely try to make it right. Now they don't do it very well, um, but that done well and perfectly is like God's wrath. This seeking to make things right. 